The scripture lesson for Palm Sunday, familiar words from the 21st chapter of Matthew, beginning at verse 1. When they had come near to Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king comes to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut palm branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hosanna to the son of David, they cried. Hosanna in the highest. The crowds are all around him today as he enters the city. A ticker tape parade? A hero's welcome? On the surface, it sounds so bright and brassy. But all you see is not all that you get. What kind of entrance is this? How do you imagine it in your mind's eye? Is it a protest march? Is it a funeral procession? Is it a parade without floats? Who really noticed that day? Was this the lead story on the national news that evening? Did it make it on 60 Minutes? Or was it just a brief segment in the middle of the local news? Did the rich and powerful, the who's who of Jerusalem, change their calendars to line the road that day? Or is this the image? More like children playing dress up and marching down the street. You know, the army jacket that's three sizes too big. The dress that's way too long despite the oversized heels. The disciples with pots and pans in hands, beating on them with wooden spoons while the dogs bark at all the commotion. What kind of entry is this? To be sure, it's not a military parade. Triumphant soldiers enter on the back of a stallion or ride in on their chariot with a victory wreath over their heads but not this entry. It is of a different order altogether, a kind of 
anti-entry, if you will, and disappointing at many levels. Matthew, you may have noticed, differentiates between the crowds who come to see Jesus and the city folk. And the picture that starts to emerge of Jesus' disciples who arrive in Jerusalem that day is that of a ragtag army from the backwater regions entering the city, creating quite a stir. Hail to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the city folk peek out of their windows. They stand in the doorways to see this group who are making all of this noise, throwing their cloaks on the road, waving palm branches, whooping and hollering. It reminds me of those peculiar situations in restaurants. You know, you're sitting there eating your burger or your fajitas when all of a sudden people two tables down are surrounded by a group of enthusiastic teenage waiters and waitresses clapping their hands. Happy, happy birthday, happy, happy birthday. And it's kind of fun, but it's not your fun. And so you could just as easily do without it. And I wonder if that's how the city folk in Jerusalem might have felt that day as the people marched by their windows, clapping and shouting Hosanna. More a disruption than a delight. Oh, no doubt some of them joined in. Everybody loves a parade, more or less, except those who have to issue the permits or who are in charge of the crowd control or who have to sit waiting at the light on a Saturday in August as the dream cruise goes parading past incessantly. So Matthew tells us there was a stir in the city. People began asking, who is this? What's this all about? And what is rather surprising is the answer that comes back. Israel, you remember, had been waiting for a Messiah for over a thousand years since the reign of King David. And still they ask, who is this? Perhaps now with a rising sense of expectation. But those who waited for that kind of figure were looking for a strong man, one who would push Rome's boot off of their necks. Rise up, Jean-Claude Van Damme, and single-handedly take on the legions of Rome. They would know the signal. They would know when to join in the struggle. Who is this? They asked. Some of them, the zealots, with knives tucked under their tunics. Remember, this is the feast of the Passover. Jesus, the Jews, have come from all over to celebrate this historic rebellion against their oppressors, the Egyptians. They have marched themselves singing songs of deliverance from the Psalms. Who is this? But instead of saying, he's here, grab your spears, unsheath your swords, the hour has come, another answer comes. Who is this, they asked. And the word came back, 
it's an itinerant rabbi, Jesus Bar-Joseph, from somewhere up north in the Galilee. He's a Nazarene. And with that, whatever messianic hopes had been stirring were immediately doused. You see, the sophisticated folk in Jerusalem didn't think much of tourists, those fisher folks from up there in the UP of Israel. And there had always been doubts about whether anything good could come out of Nazareth. You know how those big city folk can be in terms of their country cousins, sort of like some podunk college football team coming to play U of M at the big house. It's just a tune-up. Or like the Hoboken Symphony coming to Detroit for an exclusive engagement. Like New Yorkers who really do believe if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Believe me, I was one of those. I really did believe that everything west of the Hudson River was mission country. In elementary school, I actually said in Sunday school that Jesus was baptized in the Hudson River. Jesus who? From Galilee? It was enough to dismiss him as just another one of those oddballs that shows up in a city from time to time. Just another wannabe from somewhere next to nowhere. When Kaiser Wilhelm entered the city of Jerusalem back in 1898, he did it in grand style, having widened the Jaffa Gate in order to make room for his special carriage and all of its trimmings. But the people of Jerusalem, bored with the sight of royalty coming and going through its gates for centuries, just yawned, and they said, a better man than he came through these city gates riding on a donkey. Tough crowd in Jerusalem, not easily impressed. So it's no wonder that those city folk of Jerusalem wanted to know what was all of this about? Who are these people that are banging on our trash cans and stirring up our children before we have even had a second cup of coffee? And of course, that's the irony, right? You could have mistaken him for anyone. He wasn't born with some heavenly mark on his head, like Harry Potter. No blue blood from his DNA testing. This is not the Jewish equivalent of my grandfather's grandfather's grandfather came over on the Mayflower. No, he showed up in Jerusalem that day looking a little foolish frankly, with his legs bowed underneath him, hanging on for dear life, folks chanting around him. Messiah? Perhaps just a case of mistaken identity. And the point is, what becomes painfully clear is that for all of those shouts of thanksgiving, all the waving of palms, he will prove not to be what they wanted. They will turn on him so fast that it will be hard to keep it all in focus. By midweek, the tide had turned. And by the end of the week, the tide had gone out. Shouts of joy turns to shouts for blood. 
his blood be upon us and upon our children, they would shout to Pilate, you can crucify him. It is, at the heart of it, the cry of a people who want some other Messiah than the one God has sent them. And therein is the rub. One of the deepest sorrows, one of the greatest disappointments in this life is that God doesn't conform to our specifications about how God is supposed to act. My thoughts are not your thoughts, he says. My ways are not yours. We like to imagine that life should be precisely the way we want it to be. We have, most of us at least, worked out a better idea of how it's supposed to be. We've written a better script than the one we are living. You're supposed to have a nice house with a couple of cars in the garage and an Ozzie and Harriet type marriage, though we know they weren't really happy in real life, you know what I mean. Your kids are supposed to be happy, never rebel against your authority, and they should feel good about themselves. There's not supposed to be any money problems. You should have a job that satisfies and challenges and yet doesn't put you under too much pressure. Your retirement should be hassle-free. The golden years should be, well, golden. <laughs> Your health should be good. No coronavirus, no heart trouble, no terminal illness. Of course, that's where it gets a little fuzzy as we get older, right? I think in our fantasies, we don't really die, we just ascend. Beam me up, Scotty, <laughs> in our sleep. No pain, no morphine drip, no skilled nursing care needed. But it doesn't work that way. Real life isn't like some idealized television sitcom where the problems get worked out in 60 minutes or less. Kids sometimes disappoint us, they break our hearts. And some parents abuse their children and terrorize their homes. Marriages grow cold and betrayals occur. People lose jobs, pandemics occur. And none of this would be part of the script that we would write. On the good days, those lovely days of spring when the crocuses and the forsythia are blooming and the arthritis isn't feeling too bad. It feels like God is in heaven and all is right with the world. But those other days, the days when things have soured and the bad news comes and love has turned to disappointment, then it feels like God is not in heaven, like God has let us down. We don't want the God who allows the good to suffer. We want the God who fixes things, who makes the world right. And that's the dilemma of Palm Sunday. Because the Savior that God sends is not necessarily the one that we want. 
rather than rescuing us from our real lives, rather than settling our problems for us, resolving all of the hard and painful things that life is teaching us in its complicated and difficult ways, God comes to us in a human form that we know all too well, ready to share our sorrows and to enter our heartbreak. He crests the Mount of Olives that day with tears in his eyes. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, would that you knew the things that make for peace. But it's not what we wanted. We wanted the genie in the bottle who will make our life more what we want, not one who gives us the strength to face life, the life that we have. Stanley Auerhouse of Duke University says that we must repent from our presumption that we, not God, rule our lives. And for my money, this is not an easy thing to do because it forces us to face the fact that we are not in control of all that happens to us and that pain and suffering and injustice still have their days. And in a world and a culture that believes it can control everything, this is perhaps the last illusion to die and a tough pill to swallow. And yet the better part of wisdom has already taught us that all of the other saviors in whom we might put trust fail so miserably in comparison. Not all the money in the world can buy us one more day when our time comes. Not all the armaments and cruise missiles in the arsenal can bring a lasting peace when people's hearts are set on war. No power on earth can give us one moment of spiritual contentment in this life, the kind that abides and endures through all of life's changes. No other name, as the old hymn says, in heaven or on earth addresses so completely the dilemma of our humanity, this long distance that we have tried to put between ourselves and God. In him... God has come down in a human form to know our suffering and to enter our experience. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, says the prophet. And by his stripes, we are healed. It's a mystery I barely understand. Somehow in Jesus' suffering and his death, I know that God knows what it is like to be me. Which may not seem like much to some, but I tell you, it is my deepest hope to know that God cares, that God understands, that God is moved for the likes of me. My colleague John Walton tells a story about growing up. This is what he writes. He says, I was never much of an artist in life. In fact, I never graduated from stick figures. It's a part of my brain that had never developed the right side, or is it the left side? My mind fails at times. 
I only knew that from my earliest memories, I have always been more verbal in expression than artistic. I can identify. It was in the third grade that the superintendent of art for the whole school district came one day to inspect the children's drawings. We all had some things out on our desk, each of us examples of our drawing skills. And the superintendent was very thoughtful and commented here and there on one child's drawings first and then another. But when she came to mine, she laughed. I guess she tried to stifle a, a little bit, but not very well. She picked up my drawings and she laughed, looking at my teacher, who wasn't quite sure what to say or do. I was crushed. After school that day, I ran home and cried. I lay down on the sofa in the living room and I cried. My father had died two years before, and the last thing in the world I needed was to feel pushed aside, even in such an insignificant thing. My mother came home from work and found me inconsolable. She's going to hear about this, she told me. I'm going to go down and see her. No one is going to treat my son that way. Don't do it, I said. It'll only make it worse. Something bad will happen to me. But she went anyway. She went down to that superintendent's office and intervened on my behalf. She went down there and defended her seven-year-old from the insensitivity of someone who should have known better. She got in the mix, defended her child, the way so many mothers seem to do when their children are suffering. And I have never forgotten her intercession that day. Compassion like that, that joins the fray, that enters into the pain and takes it to herself. And so Jesus rides into Jerusalem today. On God's behalf, and on our own, rides into the pain, shares the suffering. And there's really only one way it can go from here. A wooden cross is already being hewn on the other side of town. On that cross hang all of our expectations, all of our illusions that we can make God in our image rather than the other way around. And yet there also hang our deepest hopes. So ironic, isn't it? For as he rides into Jerusalem and they shout, save us, he does. But not in the way that we expect. For you see, unless he dies in despair, we cannot live or die in hope. Ride on, ride on in majesty, in lowly pomp, ride on to die. Bow thy meek head to mortal pain, then take, O God, thy power and reign. Amen.